this week on the Rail Splitter podcast, we are talking about the Battle of Shiloh. Splitters, it's Real Splitter Mary here, and joining me tonight is my co-host Nick. What's up, people? Listen to us on your podcasty devices. And although he's not here with us in person, he's definitely here in spirit. Real Splitter Jeremy, and uh, he was—he will be back here soon. If any of you follow us on Instagram, it's Real Splitter Pod. Uh, you will notice that Jeremy posted some. Uh, pictures from the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum where he I believe he visited this past weekend. So that was really awesome to see that um, look like he and his family were looking at some pretty cool exhibits. So before we get to uh, the Battle of Shiloh, we have some exciting news here in real splitter land. And well, you and Jeremy <laughs> have exciting news. And then rail splitter Jeremy, this is Yes, Rail Splitter Jeremy. Um, anyway, back, um, it was around Labor Day weekend. Um, I was approached to um, ask if the Rail Splitter podcast would like to participate in a roundtable, like online roundtable discussion, which I've never been part of a roundtable discussion like in person with people. So virtually, I didn't know what to expect, but I said yes right away. And uh, Jeremy podcast, Real Splitter Jeremy joined me in that. And we have our names in the journal of the Abraham Lincoln Association, the winter edition of it, I think it is. And I was honored to be asked. And so was Jeremy. But for me, I can't speak for Jeremy. But for me, like after I said yes, after the whole like, wow, this is pretty cool wore off. It was like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, I'm up against other, you know, I'm up with other people. One of them was from Ford's Theater. Another one was from um, another Lincoln site. And it was at first very intimidating. But then when I started answering the questions, it got like, you know, it was pretty comfortable, pretty easygoing, but still like really nerve wracking. Um, and the questions were about like Lincoln and public history. And although we are not like a physical site, it was still interesting to think about the questions and put them in terms of our podcast. And it was an experience I really enjoyed. I really learned a lot from the other people and took away new ideas like for our podcast. Like one of the one of the people said that, you know, you can come up with like a great exhibit or a great idea, but you have to ask why. You know, like why is this relevant? Why is it important? You know, how is it going to like teach people and like keep Lincoln alive and um, it like keep his legacy alive. And it was um, just a very interesting discussion to have. Um, but at the same time, like I'm still kind of in disbelief that I'm like myself and uh, real splitter Jeremy are like our names are there in this Lincoln journal. And that's something that, you know, I always thought was reserved for just like, you know, Lincoln scholars, but I think it, it also shows um, how the field of history might be changing a little bit that those of us that you know don't like you know don't have our PhDs or we're not degreed historians that we can still make leaps in the field and we can have our voices heard and we can become part of this community um, and there is a lot more acceptance than there used to be and I think that on a whole that's really positive no yeah I think it's uh, you are now a published historian <laughs> I know you don't think that, but I'm going to say that okay. for you and Jeremy. Okay. No, I think, uh, yeah, the gatekeeper has been kind of get his ass kicked out of the way, and mm -hmm. now technology has made it more accessible to where people like you and me can get access to these primary sources through digitized copies and whatnot to where we could dive into it more. So, yeah. And then definitely, it was definitely intimidating to the point where I'm like, yeah, I'll go about <laughs> on this one. I could barely speak, as everybody knows, and writing's even worse. So, 
I'll let the I'll let the brainiacs do it, and then I'll just. I didn't want to become too smart, and then because I'm like there for the people who don't want to be intimidated by the smartness of Mary and Jeremy, and then like, oh yeah, I know more than this dumbass. So that's my role, and I didn't want to dive into research and take a chance that I might say something bright. So actually, no, I was just too intimidated in time. So. I applaud you. It's awesome. Badass. Gives us more credibility. Thank you. Um, to have a, I am co-hosting tonight with a published historian. <laughs> no, I, I think the big thing you said it is, I think the snobby attitude that was, obviously, I, I think maybe it might have been overblown, but there definitely was some of that, but that has been pushed back and mm-hmm. people are starting to realize that. You don't need a PhD to make a, a significant contribution to the history history field, um, and then for us for the Lincoln field, and, and I think we've seen that, um, and it could be a field to where we're just a bunch of fans. It's almost just like I view what we do in the Twitter community that kind of follows us as what's going on in Chicago this week, a Star Wars convention, mm-hmm. where you know all the Star Wars fans are getting together. Um, and that's basically what we're doing. So, yeah, and it's cool that it's been more accepted and recognized. Yeah, it's you know, social media has made the world a smaller place, and I think it. Um, my friend John has a podcast called The Tattoo Historian, which our listeners like. If you haven't listened to it yet, listen to it. It is excellent. He covers all different areas of history: Civil War, World War One, World War Two. Um, he's got a really cool episode on um, a tattoo shop that's located in Gettysburg. And, you know, he mentions that in one episode too, like where like kind of like social media has made this like accessible and allowed like us to have more of a voice. And it's made the world, the, the community a smaller place in that it's becoming a place where you really like you're like, if you mention somebody's name, like, oh, have you heard of this guy? Then if you're talking to somebody that's in the civil war they they could be like, Oh yeah, yeah. I know them from, I follow them on Twitter. And that happened to me when I was in Gettysburg, when I was at the Victorian photo studio and uh, she's now my friend, Liz Bukowski. Um, if Liz is listening, hi Liz. Um, I said to her, I'm like, yeah, I'm meeting up with my friend John on Tuesday here in Gettysburg. And she said his name and said, I'm friends with him too. Like I had no idea. Like, and that's how small of a world, like, it is. And um, so I count her as one of my friends now. John is one of my friends. And, um, you know, there's many other people in the Civil War field that I know of that, um, like, I feel like if I met them in person, like, I'd go up and have a good conversation with them. I'd run away scared. <laughs> that's not true. No, you'd get, you ever... you'd get there and you'd be fine. Yeah, they, I mean, yeah. I my problem would be such a long line. Like if we all three of us were there for me. Oh, I know. Because I'm everybody's favorite. Yeah, exactly. It'd, be, it'd just be awkward. I'd be like, oh, come on, go talk to Mary. <laughs> As Jeremy and I are standing, like girls for Jeremy and I are standing off, like, well, nobody wants to talk to us. Liz, I know I'm your favorite, but <laughs> come on, Mary knew you first. Go talk to her. John, yeah, 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 yeah. I agree, yeah. Go go talk to Jeremy. So, <laughs> I'm yeah, overwhelmed right now. <laughs> I, that made it sound like I didn't want to talk to John. That's not the case at <laughs> all. So, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah. So yeah, I agree with everything you said. So it's been just a cool experience, and kudos to you because um, definitely intimidating task. Uh, and to put together thoughts on paper is not always easy but i feel you do it very well so oh thank you uh, whether it's on twitter your blog post or lincoln scholar journal <laughs> thank you like you are now in or my lengthy uh, show notes yeah your show notes are yeah something yes that... that's why that's why i always keep my show notes a secret <laughs> have i ever shared show notes i don't think maybe twice what like twice I remember the fir- I, had- I remember the first time time I shared them, and like Jeremy was like, "Well, these are extensive or something like that," and I'm like, "Yep." No, they are. I mean, it's much appreciated. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, it's like I've got to have everything down there because I will like I think I will like 
I could be having a normal conversation with somebody and be able to, you know, talk about it. But if I'm doing the podcast, I think I'm still a little bit nervous and I will blank and I'll be like, what was that general's name again? Yeah. I just say I'm wrong. So, yeah, I or I'll get them mixed up or something. But that is a great segue into what our show is about today. Which sure is. is the Battle of Shiloh, which was fought April 6th and 7th, 1862. So we've just passed the anniversary of it this past weekend. We should have done our show down there. That Why didn't we? Oh, we both got jobs. Yeah, <laughs> full-time jobs. Got to pay bills. Damn it. It's a little bit far. We don't, uh, have, we don't have that private rail splitter jet yet. Please feel free to send any donations to One Husky Circle, McChesney Park, and put my name on it. So <laughs> that way, we'll, or we'll take any sponsorship. So um, if this is the Lincoln Museum, you're listening to us, maybe, you know, uh, Gettysburg National Park, we will take any sponsorships. Um, and once you start paying us, I'll say anything you want me to. <laughs> <laughs> For a certain amount. So. Yes. We're looking but, to Yeah, pay. like literally anything. Any, wow. donate, any donation. We'll wear any shirts, whatever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love merch. Nike, <laughs> yeah, merch. if we're listening to yeah. you and you want to give uh, you know, your new Air Jordan Lincoln shoes that I'm sure you're making, I'll be more than happy Air to wear Air Jordan them. Lincoln shoes. That should be a thing. That'd be badass. You heard it here first on the Real Splitter podcast, folks. Air Jordan Lincoln shoes. <laughs> Get it done. Hit me up, Nike. <laughs> um. Anyway, so... The, the Battle of Shiloh is also known as the Battle of Pittsburgh Landing, and it's called Shiloh for a small church that was there. And it was not an ideal spot to fight a battle. Not that, I mean, you, not that the two generals get together and are like, do you want to fight here? Not really. Like, let's go down the road a bit. Like, that's, that's not how it works. But still, this is not an ideal spot to fight a battle. There's swamps, ravines. And very few cleared areas, although I think it probably looks a little bit different now. And Nick, you don't need to go any details because I know you're going to be discussing this in a future episode. But is there like, has it been pretty well cleared there? Like, It's pretty decently preserved, Okay, I would say, Shiloh. It was the first battlefield I went to, so it's my hardest one to remember. Mm. But I would put it comparable to, I mean, it's not the Gettysburg, so... I put it comparable to Antietam. Okay. So, um, you know, like the big stuff is there. Well, kept, like that area is all part of the park and well done. Um, but yeah, I thought it was a solid battlefield. Okay, cool. It's uh, it's not like Fredericksburg where all this buildup has happened. Yeah. Right on top of where the major stuff took place. That's not the case at all. Okay. So they definitely have all that's part of the park. Okay, so, cool. For sure. And so the Union Army is led by General Ulysses S. Grant, and we briefly touched on this battle in our episodes about General Grant. Um, so he's leading the Army of the Tennessee and the Army of the Ohio. So other prominent figures at the battle include Sherman McClernand, who we talked about in the Grant episodes, Crittenden, Nelson, Buell, and uh, Lou Wallace. In total, there are 65,053 Union troops. The Confederate Army is led by General Albert Sidney Johnston and also by General Pierre Gustave Touton Beauregard. Oh, nicely done. Just because I like to say his name, um, who will take over when Johnston is killed on the afternoon of the first day. Sorry, spoiler alert. Um, so and uh, Johnston's uh, pretty well established going in. He is. He's very. He's actually quite well respected. I think on on both sides. Yeah, he's like the number two in the Confederates, pretty much. Yep. Um, the number one had like a pencil pushing job, basically mm -hmm. during the war. Yep. Um, but like he's a veteran of the Black Hawk War, actually. Yep. Um, but he had to go back, and then he was actually a veteran from the Texas, uh, you know, fight for independence. He actually ended up serving as like Secretary of War for Texas, I believe. And then he was a veteran of Mexican American War. Um, so he was very well respected, definitely going into this. Mm -hmm. Although he kind of lost a little bit of favor, um, as the Civil War went on leading up to this. Yes, he did. Touch on that, but so I'll stop there. I didn't have anything about that. So if you want to talk a little bit about that, do you have anything on it? Well, just basically after Grant gets Fort Donaldson, they're all worried about um, 
maintaining the railroad. There's basically one railroad that connects the east to the Mississippis on an east-west journey. That's down in Corinth, which I've been to. But people down there, the locals call it Carneth. I still don't know why. Yes, I swear to God. They call it Carneth, but it's spelled C-O-R-N-I-T-H. Yeah, I don't have an answer for you. Um, so they actually, he drops all the way back there, and that kind of makes a lot of people angry, making it look like he's given all this ground. But, um, yeah, and a big part of that's because of Fort Donaldson and gaining so much access to the rivers and the waterways after that. Yeah, I think he was heavily criticized by Davis Yep. for that. Um, and Johnson's leading the Army of the Mississippi, and other prominent Confederate figures in the battle include um, Bragg, Polk, Breckenridge, Hardy, and Claiborne. There's 44,968 Confederate troops. So clearly, uh, Johnson is a little bit outnumbered at this point. Are the Union troops set with Buell added, right? Yes. Yeah, so Buell's not like that's the total forces. That's not on the first day of the battle, there's like a little yeah. bit less, but then you have to get like Lou Wallace's troops there. And then Buell's troops mm-hmm. who don't arrive till later in the day. Um, so the total number of forces engaged at Shiloh for the two days are 110,000, 110,053. Mm-hmm. Like okay. that's a shit ton of troops. Like it's a lot of people. Yeah. And when it's over on April 7th, the Battle of Shiloh will be the bloodiest day in American military history at the time, with casualties totaling 23,746. Over 13,000 of these will be Union, and over 10,000 are going to be Confederates. Yeah, you're talking about the numbers. I think something that I don't know if we touched on really is the Civil War is really the first time these guys, these generals, are leading this large of groups. Um, and divisions into battle. Um, and I think that was an adjustment period for a lot of them, too, because the numbers are just really mind-boggling, especially when you start looking back to Mexican-American War and the other generals throughout American history up to that point. No, and I think that's a great point to touch on because a lot of these first battles are really, like, the communication is poor, like, people don't follow orders, and I think some of the commanding generals who you'd think would be good at what they're, you know, would know what they're doing. They seem to like, not like really, you know, it's, there's stuff that happens that when you look back now and it's been analyzed, like there's all these like, well, if he had done this, like, why didn't he do that? And there's a lot of criticism surrounding it. Um, And Shiloh being so early in the civil war, like April 1862. So the civil war has just been being fought for just under a year at this point, um, the first shots were fired on April 14th, 1861. And Grant said of Shiloh in his memoirs, the Battle of Shiloh or Pittsburgh Landing has been perhaps less understood or to state the case more accurately, more persistently misunderstood than any other engagement between national and Confederate troops during the entire rebellion. And the thing I read about in my research um, was like there was there's all these myths surrounding Shiloh. And they came about soon after the battle. And Grant also mentions in his memoirs that, you know, even though Sherman wrote an official report and like McClernand and Wallace and all that, and that they were like Grant's is relatively accurate, that these myths still rose and they overtook what the official reports were. Yeah. And then I think that's just something that happens, unfortunately. Yeah. History and... Um, stuff. I know we've talked about this ad nauseum, and just in regards to Lincoln himself, so um, the misrepresentation. So yeah, I agree with that point. Yep, and there's a lot of it around Shiloh. Like, there's a lot of like, as we're going to talk about in a few minutes, like the uh, the controversy of Lew Wallace. Like, what was he told to do? And then like, you know, Sherman basically denying that it had been a surprise, but then admitting in some cases that yes, I was surprised that day at Shiloh, um, and. Um, in the lead up to the battle, um, February of 1862, so the Union Army had managed to take control of the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers by taking Forts Henry and Donaldson. Um, and this is what got, as we discussed in the Grant episodes, this is what got Grant's name really well known. 
And the rivers are a huge thing for the Union Army, because if you control the rivers, you're starting to sever the Confederacy and you're making things very difficult for them. This is also where a cigar habit started. Is it really? Yeah, we've got the mention. After Fort Donaldson, people started sending him all these cigars. And before then, he would smoke out of a pipe. And then he kind of switched over at the beginning of the war to cigars, according to what I saw. Did not know uh, that. That's interesting. And then, yeah, which would eventually probably be why he got cancer. (laughs) Yeah. So... Which is funny. I think Sherman smoked as many... Like, Sherman apparently was a chain smoker. Like, he would, like, finish one cigar and light another. And he never got cancer. And he ends up dying of pneumonia. But still, like, just from what I've read about him, like, constantly smoking. Like... How how old did he live to? Sherman died in 1891. He was... I hope I'm getting that date right. I better be getting it right. He's my favorite general. He was 71. 71? Yeah pretty good run yeah yeah he was he was one of the last uh i think sheridan went first really he was the youngest out of the three i think so yeah and this is totally sidetracking when sheridan was buried at arlington there was a man standing there after for a good while by himself and that man was sherman and actually no i think it was grant died first and then sheridan and then Sherman. So the reason Sherman was standing at Sheridan's grave for so long was that was kind of the like Sheridan had been yeah. the last. How old was Sherman then during the Civil War? He was born in 1820. Okay. So at bat- Battle, Shil- Battle of Shiloh, he would have been in his 40s. Yeah, you're right. I'm not good at math, <laughs> obviously. He at Battle hey, Shil- uh, Battle Shiloh, he would have been 42 years old. Hey, Jer, feel free to edit that one out. Uh, <laughs> no, Jer will leave that in. <laughs> I'm not you should good. leave it in now. I'm because... not good at math. <laughs> You'll have to. <laughs> you should leave it in now because I mentioned it. It'll make for a better podcast. Exactly. But, uh, yeah. Damn, that was bad. Like I said, 40s. <laughs> yeah. Nick Nick said 40. 30, 30 is the new 40. That's what he meant. Hey, hey Jer, pick it up right here. Uh, that put him in his early 40s, right, Mary? <laughs> yes, he's 42 years old. <laughs> So, anyway, so after these forts fall into Union hands, General Albert Sidney Johnson pulls back from Kentucky and regroups in Corinth, Mississippi. Um, Corinth! Yeah, Corinth. Really, we, I mean, we love what we do here at Real Splitter Podcast, but we also love laughing and having a good time while we do these shows, so it's it's a good time. (laughs) Um, So, General Grant... Um, after all this happens, uh, so Johnson is at Corinth. I say we say Corinth. Corinth, okay, thank you. It's much better. Um, General Grant makes his camp um, in a southwestern corner of Tennessee called Pittsburgh Landing. Um, Grant's actually up in Savannah, Tennessee, which is about, I think, about nine miles upriver from this. Um, so the Union troops are kind of, they're spaced out a little bit, but they're in this general area of Pittsburgh landing and he's just got raw recruits there and they're training them. And they're also awaiting the arrival of reinforcements from general Buell. So it was on April 4th that general Johnson had originally planned to attack troops, but due to horrible rains, the attack had to be postponed and union forces camped at Pittsburgh landing here. Nothing of the Confederate troops coming there. There had been a few minor skirmishes leading up to the battle, but nothing serious and nothing that caused alarm for Grant and Sherman. Now, General Claiborne got a little bit trigger happy. I think it was on the evening, sometime on April 5th, and he actually moved some of his troops forward and he wasn't supposed to, and he nearly gave away their position. Yeah, and then Um, Beauregard actually wanted to withdraw back to Corinth. Yeah. Partially because of that. And the fact that it took three days to go, I, what was it, like 15 miles? It's pretty yeah, close. Yeah, it was crazy because of the rains yeah. and all that. Like Corinth isn't that far from Shiloh, so no. it could easily have been a day march. But, yeah, you talk about all the – they got a late start one day. Yeah. And then just the rain and just, like as you mentioned earlier at the beginning, just uh, the, the terrain you'd really get, you know, this time of the year too. Um not easy to go move no. along those. So he was actually trying to talk Johnson into pulling back, actually. Yeah. Which is funny considering what he attempts to do on the second day of Shiloh and he has to be told by somebody else to like 
yeah. no, we can't do this. Um, so on the evening of April 5th, the Confederate troops are camped about two miles from the Union camp where Sherman has his troops, which is right near Sh- Sherman's right near Shiloh Church. Um, so this guy, Colonel Jesse Appler of the 53rd Ohio, comes to Sherman that night and says, basically, he's like, dude, they're there. Like, they're going to attack us. And Sherman replies, take your damned regiment back to Ohio. There are no Confederates closer than Corinth. And Sherman believes that if Johnson is going to attack, it will be from the direction of Purdy, Tennessee. And then Grant sends a telegram to Halleck saying, I have scarcely the faintest idea of an attack being made upon us, but will be prepared such a thing take place. So this is where, why there's um, an idea that Shiloh was a surprise. And I mean, if Sherman's saying, take your damned regiment back to Ohio, like he's thinking nobody's there. Like, why else would you... Why else would you say that? And I mean, Grant seems to think, you know, sounds like Grant's a little bit unsure, but he's trying, maybe he's trying to say to Halleck, like, nah, they're not going to attack us, but hey, we're, we're prepared. We're good. Yeah. Um, the, the, what I was reading the source, I can't remember, but uh, it was off of a link on the Shiloh National Park page. <laughs> and it, it made like Sherman sound like, like this guy's reporting this to Sherman. And then Sherman just like loses his mind, you know how his temper can be. Yep. And then like everybody in his room's like, "Oh, okay, we're not going to speak anymore." I, I feel yeah. like it's almost like that student trying to tell a teacher, that old cranky teacher, "Hey, like we did this worksheet yesterday." No, you didn't. <laughs> no, no, we're doing it again. And yeah. all the kids are like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> There's no <laughs> troops there, and everybody's yeah. like awkwardly standing around, like, "Okay." <laughs> that's how I see it. Yeah, that that's exactly how I saw it too. Um, so then day one of Shiloh, which is April the 6th, Johnston awakened, Johnston's troops are awakened around 4 a.m. And they eat breakfast. And um, one account I read, they were having bacon and biscuits, which is pretty decent breakfast. Um, and after they form their lines and they start moving towards Sherman's forces. And it's at this time that Johnston tells Beauregard and Bragg, tonight we shall water our horses in the Tennessee River. So he's quite confident he's got this. And when he hears that he's quite possibly outnumbered, he said, I would fight them if they were a million. Yeah, and he kind of makes an important decision here because he decides kind of around this moment that he's going to go up to the front yep. and lead from uh, lead from the front instead of the rear and keeps Beauregard back in the rear. And then I read one account, which I kind of agree with. It's like they almost switched positions yeah. because the guy in charge, you know, I understand the want to be up there, but you got to be in the rear so you can move and kind of assess things a little bit easier. Because once you're in the middle of stuff, and and I've seen this talking to veterans, is they don't know the master plan. Like it's so small and isolated your world at that moment when you're in the middle of a you know a gunfight or a battle on there. Because I always thought, like, you sit down with these World War II guys. Oh, you're at D-Day. Oh, what would you think about the overall plan? The guy's like, I don't know. I was on a ship going into the beach, and they're all shooting at me. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I, I think that was – Johnson made a mistake by doing that. Oh, it was very detrimental to um, yeah. when Beauregard had to take over because I don't think he had any idea what the hell was going on. Like, mm-hmm. he's told Johnson's dead, and he's like, oh, okay, well, sh- cover up his body so they don't know and, like – We'll carry on. Like, I don't think he was really, it seems like he wasn't really paying attention to the reports he was getting and all that. And, um, like, yeah, that I think was definitely a mistake on Johnson's part. Well, he, like <laughs> grave mistake on Johnson's part. And, um, so Sherman's experience that morning. So he hears the skirmishing begin. So he goes out to investigate, and he goes to the 53rd Ohio, which is where the same dude that he yells at the night before is there. And while he's here, one guy notices some advancing rebels and he yells at Sherman to move. So Sherman moves. His aide, his orderly, Private Thomas D. Holiday, ends up getting killed. And Sherman raises his hand and gets like buckshot in it. And then he said to have yelled, my God, we are attacked. And then Colonel Ampler's like, yeah, no shit, yeah, dude. No kidding. Yeah, I just, I can't imagine how that all went down. Like, and then Sherman would deny that it had been a surprise attack, but he admitted to his brother John, like, I confess I did not think Beauregard would abandon his railroad to attack our base. 
And later, we all knew the enemy was on our front, but we had to guess at his purpose. Well, if the enemy's at your purpose, odds are they're not just going to like sit there and want to have dinner with you. You know? Yeah, no kidding. Um, and this is your boy. This is your boy dropping the ball. How do you feel about this? It's it's definitely not his strong suit, like not a strong area, but I think he learned from it. And he does rally back like pretty quickly, like, uh, like Robert L. O'Connell in his biography of Sherman Fierce Patriot said that, like, you know, despite the surprise, you know, Sherman, like, and Sherman and Grant were both really good at this. Like, even if they're surprised, they, they somehow they keep their cool. Like, they don't yeah. freak out. They do really well in situations like this. And I mean, Sherman suffered from um, what today would be diagnosed as generalized anxiety disorder. Um, and like, I suffer from it too. And I mean, I'm not involved in wars or anything, but there's times where like, I think I should be stressed out and I keep my cool. So yeah, that's how my anxiety works. It's like, yeah, it's when I get time to sit back is when it's worse than when I'm busy and running rampant. Yeah. Yeah, and and that's exactly how Sherman was. So he's running around the battlefield. He's placing troops into position. And because his friendship with Grant is just starting to form at this point, like they still have this trust. Sherman's kind of the de facto commander on the field until Sherman or until Grant arrives uh, two hours into the battle. Because remember, he's uh, about nine miles upstream from uh, Shiloh. Um, So and it said that like this whole thing, like how Sherman was redeems himself from the crazy incident the year before, where he had to go on leave. And then, um, you know, his brother John and his wife Ellen are writing letters to Lincoln saying, please, like put him back in the army like he's not crazy. And Sherman's division is going to bear the brunt of this attack. um, But they do slowly lose ground during the day and they end up falling back behind Shiloh Church. But McClernand's division will stabilize things for a while, but they too get driven back and this whole element of surprise like lou wallace um states in his autobiography that the union army had been taken by surprise but which i kind of agree with but i sometimes think that lou wallace will get a dig in at shiloh anywhere he can because of like what he went through mm-hmm. with you know the we'll talk about this in a second like just the the what he was ordered to do and how there was controversy over that um so as the Confederates are advancing, um, they're dropping their flintlock muskets and grabbing the rifles of the fleeing Union troops. But then things for the Confederates slow down because fresh food was still burning on the campfires of the Union soldiers. Again, showing that they're not like the, the sold, like clearly this was a bit of a surprise for them. If your food is still on the fire, yeah. you know, you, you obviously weren't formed in your battle line. So, yeah, I mean, that's a great point. Definitely. So. Yeah, all the evidence is pointing and reading from, you know, the National Park site and stuff. I think it's most people point to there was definitely an element of surprise. Yeah. Uh, Maybe an element of shock as opposed to surprise because knowing that they're in Corinth, maybe it's not like a a surprise. I don't know. Which one's worse, surprise or shock? Surprise. Surprise is worse. I th- well, I think from the surprise, you're going to be shocked. Well, maybe not. I don't know. We're analyzing this too much yeah. now. Yeah. But. Um, so anyway, while this is all going on, Grant's making his way to Pittsburgh Landing. And um, he had a near sleepless night. And part of this is because his horse fell, rolled on his ankle. So Grant's got a sprained ankle. And while he's at breakfast, he's received reports that General Rollins has brought to him saying you know, what's going on. And at this point, Grant can hear, he's starting to hear the cannons and he knows something is going on. So he says, gentlemen, the ball is in motion. Let's be off. And he lets Buell know that heavy firing is heard up the river, indicating plainly that an attack has been made on our most advanced positions. And he tells Buell, I'm going up river to see what's going on. And then on his way to Pittsburgh Landing, he stops at Crump's Landing, where General Lew Wallace has his troops. Grant is said to have ordered him to hold until he figures out, until he gets to Pittsburgh Landing, and then from there he'll let Wallace know what to do. But in the meantime, Wallace is to send out a scouting division to make sure that Johnston does not have troops headed to his position. 
and then things end up not going well for Lou Wallace, and he sort of gets lost. And around 11 a.m., he gets word that he is to move. And by this point, Grant's arrived at Pittsburgh Landing. He gets there around 8.30. So two and a half hours after he arrives, um, he sends orders to Lou Wallace that he'll be supporting Sherman's 5th Division. But the orders weren't written. They're verbal, which is a huge mistake. And what they might, might have happened, apparently Grant might have written them and the guy dropped them, like nobody knows. So Wallace argued that he had not been ordered to Pittsburgh Landing and was not told which road to take. Grant argues that he was ordered to Pittsburgh Landing and he was told to take the river road. So... I don't... Like, I've heard of this. I don't know it nearly as well as you. Where do historians favor on this, Wallace or Grant, or is it still pretty divided? It's pretty divided. Okay. It seems to be quite divided. Like, and anything I read is talking about it very neutrally. Like, mm-hmm. um, so Wallace... Ta- it's, a, it's a he said, he said, pretty much. Yeah. Like, without any documents or anything. Yeah, like, Wallace takes the Shunpike Road, and an orderly of Grant comes to find him, and is like, where are you? You're supposed to be there, and... Wallace is informed that the Union troop positions have changed and they're they're in a retreat. And um, that if Wallace kept going the way he was, he would be in the rear of the advancing Confederates. So there's no debate, to clear this up for maybe some of our listeners, there's no debate on where he was at and where he went. No. The debate's over why he made those choices. Yes, yep. And it's- Wallace says it's because he got no instructions. Yep. And Grant's saying he didn't follow my instructions. Yeah. Got you. Yeah. To clear that up for everybody. Yeah. Sorry if that was a little bit confusing the way I was talking about it. Even I was like confused when I was researching. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on. Like, like what are they? So Wallace ends up taking the river road that Grant originally wanted to take. But to get his troops there, he countermarches them in order to maintain original order, which takes up a bunch of time. And he doesn't get to the battle until around 630. Yeah, that's not what they were hoping for. Nope. So that's what happened to Lou Wallace, and that's one of the, that's also another of the controversies or myths surrounding Shiloh is 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 that. So getting into the battle, there's the first thing that is really famous about the battle is the Hornet's Nest, and it's along the sunken road. Um, the main Union defensive line is held by Prentice and W. H. L. Wallace's divisions. And the Confederates made several charges, but they kept being repulsed. And then W.H.L. Wallace ends up being mortally wounded. And keep in mind, this is different than Lou Wallace. Like, this is another confusing thing about the battle, is there's a couple people with the same last name. And the Confederates are led by um, Brigadier General Daniel Ruggles, who organizes what becomes known as Ruggles Battery, there's more than 50 cannons assembled here, and it was the largest concentration of artillery assembled to that point in North American history. Yeah. It's kind of showing me the scale. Shiloh often gets overlooked because, I mean, up to that point, it was the biggest, bloodiest battle in mm-hmm. Civil War history. Um, it's still in the tops, but it gets overshadowed in that regards by Gettysburg, Antietam, um, and a few others. Um, but yeah. I think that statement right there kind of really puts it in uh, perspective. Yeah, and I think sometimes it gets overshadowed too because it is a little, it's not, I think Gettysburg is pretty easy to follow along with as a battle. Whereas, and we encountered this with Fredericksburg, like it's, there's confusion. There's Mm. like, you know, he said, he said, like, you know, what were the exact orders um, just as to what is going on. And it's a very, like, you know, I, you know, I was studying battle maps late last night with this, trying to wrap my mind around where the troops were and what was going on. And um, like the union troops held this position at the hornet's nest for several hours. But yeah, this is, I always kind of view the hornet's nest as sunken road is like, the Confederates make their charge, catch them by surprise, and this is like almost like where they regroup yep. for a while. And they're able to slow them down and hold them, which is pretty much the main significance that people give Hornet's Nest, mm-hmm. is that they were able to hold out so long there. 
And so courageously, because they pretty much end up getting surrounded, I'm probably going into what you were going to talk about. No, next, feel but. free to to talk about it too. So um, I'll let you continue with it. Um, yeah, the troops, as Nick said, they get surrounded and they're captured. And um, as you said, Nick, they buy time. Mm-hmm. And that's so that they can establish this final defensive line near Pittsburgh Landing. Now, while this is all going on, Albert Sidney Johnson dies. Shot in the leg. Supposedly, if he would have went back right away, I was reading one account that they believe that they probably could have saved him. Mm-hmm. And he just was, he just kept out there on the field too long and he just bled to death, basically. Yeah. Um, and they say one of the reasons he bled to death is he couldn't feel. The bullet went in behind his right knee. Mm-hmm. And he had been in a duel in 1837 and been shot. And they say that caused nerve damage. Um, but I wonder, too, if he was going on adrenaline. And, I mean, when you're going on adrenaline, like, you don't feel, like, sometimes you don't feel pain. Like, you just, you keep going. And then when you stop, you're like, oh, how did I get that bruise? Like, yeah. but he ends up bleeding to death. And after he died, they found a tourniquet in his pocket. And, like, as you said, Nick, yeah, like, yeah, they could have saved him. Um, and upon his death, um, he's the highest ranking general killed on either side in the civil war. Mm -hmm. Um, and Beauregard assumes command and he orders Johnson's body covered to maintain secrecy and to keep morale high. Because if you find out your commander's dead, like you might not want to keep going and it might affect morale. Oh yeah, for sure. Especially once he was so visible out there too. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, and he, he puts himself out there much the same way um, I was kind of thinking about, like, well, what, how is this comparable to something that happened in the Union Army? Like General Reynolds on July 1st at Gettysburg, mm-hmm. riding ahead with the Iron Brigade. He ends oh, up that's a good shot. point. Now, they say that Reynolds might not have known that the rebels were in um, what is now known as Reynolds Woods. Um, I think it was originally back then called Erbst Woods. Um but they say that that was, I've read one article about it, where it was a reckless move for a commander to be up like that. And in defense of Johnson, I mean, all these other guys had their moments to where they definitely got too far ahead. I oh, mean, yeah. From Lee to Grant yep. to, you know, um, so I think when that adrenaline kicks in, you're a professional soldier, you know, a lot of those guys want to lead from the front, um, which isn't necessarily always just the right or smart decision to do. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's understandable too. So, you know, I wasn't poo-pooing it too much, but, um, no. yeah, you got to be able to understand when the moment's right and, and war, I mean, shit, half of it's fate and luck. Exactly. Stuff goes. I mean, just look at Johnson wanted to do this the fourth. Yeah. If he does it all the fourth, does everything play out differently? Does this be able to get there in time? You know what I mean? Going on the second day that we're going to talk about here soon, you know, that's what war is. It's just sometimes the luck. You can be the best general, and then you take a bullet to the back of your knee that you didn't feel, and you sit with the tourniquet in your pocket, and you die. Yeah. And, I mean, and it's one of the big what ifs of the Civil War. Like, what if Johnston had survived? Like, would he, like, how would things have been different? Like, cause he was a pretty adept commander and tactician, I think. Yeah. Um, and I think that's also what makes it tough for people who survive, you know, to see somebody like that die. And then I did all these stupid things and I survive. Yes. <laughs> and then it's just like, just crazy. Yeah. Um, so then that, so while time is being bought at the hornet's nest, with this brave defense or like, you know, brave union troops there, there's a defensive line being formed at Pittsburgh landing from some of the union troops that are retreating towards there. And, um, it's a solid three mile front around Pittsburgh landing. And part of Buell's troops arrive later in the day to reinforce this. And there's more than 50 cannon cannons and you have Naval guns from these vessels that are out in the river and around 6 p.m., there's one final Confederate charge, which is unsuccessful, and Beauregard called off the second charge. And this reminded me the second day, or the first day at Gettysburg, where I think it was Lee told, I yeah, see I'm drawing a blank on which general it was. It was a general that took an, taken over for Stonewall. I think it was A.P. Hill. 
Yeah, either that or Yule, right? Yeah, no, Yule. Yeah, Yule. And Yule was like, nah, I'm not going to do that. You know, and they say, had he done yeah. it, thing, things might have gone a little bit differently. Like, we're seeing something similar here. Like, you know, what if Beauregard had not called off? But he calls it off. And so the troop positions on the evening of April 6th are um, Confederates are now sleeping where Union troops had by Shiloh Church. So they're in, you know, they're in nice tents. They're able to build fires. The the Union troops are sleeping out in the rain. Um, it rains that night on and off. And But the Union troops have been pushed back into what is an easily defensible position, and they still outnumber the Confederate troops, especially now that Lou Wallace's troops have arrived and Buell's troops have arrived. And um, they can easily be resupplied because they have the river and they have the boats on the river. And keep in mind, like upriver, they control all that because that's where Forts Henry and Donelson are. And the original Confederate battle plan had wanted to force the Union troops to the west and into the swamps. And there's not really any way that can happen now. And um, Sherman said that it rained hard during the night, but our men were in good spirits, lay on their arms, being satisfied with such bread and meat as could be gathered at the neighboring camps and determined to redeem on Monday the losses of Sunday. Yeah, and I think this is where Grant and Sherman really separate themselves is that day did not go well for the union. No, they got lucky. They were fortunate um, that they were able to slow them down. They were fortunate that, you know, Beauregard called off that second charge, but Grant was calm enough to realize he had the advantage. Now mm-hmm. he had fresh troops coming in. Wallace's troops, you know, didn't see virtually probably any fighting. And then you got Buell's troops coming in and he's going to take advantage of that. Yeah. And, Sherman at first doesn't realize that, and he goes to talk to Grant around 11 o'clock to say, look, we need to retreat, we can't do this, like, but he sees Grant standing under this tree, and he kind of has a moment of, like, maybe I should wait and see what Grant's got to say, and he approaches Grant, and he says, well, Grant, we've had the devil's own day of it, haven't we, and Grant just responds, yep, lick him tomorrow, though. Yeah, this is vintage uh, Grant to me, so... Yeah, that just that de- that determination that you know, like Grant's philosophy, and we discussed this in uh, the sh- the shows we did about him. Like, always move forward, always just keep going. Like, don't don't go back. And that's exactly what he he does at Shiloh. Um, so day two, Beauregard does not realize he's outnumbered. Grant, uh, I just had a thought. Grant must have been, I don't know if he ever got in a bar fight, but he must have been a, you know, a bitch to fight in a bar fight. Oh, yeah. I, I see him just as like, you keep knocking him down, like even if you were massively bigger than him, and he just keeps getting up and coming at you, and you're like, damn it, man, just stay down. Yeah, well, he's like a bulldog. Like, he yeah. wouldn't let go. He was relentless. And I mean, he was not a big guy. Grant was only about 5'7 tall. I know. <laughs> like, there was a lot of other generals that were like tall. Like, Sherman was about 5'10". I think. Yeah. I, I think, think Johnson was a big guy. Oh yeah. Johnson, Johnson was big. Um, Tom, General Thomas, rocket Chickamauga. I think he was about six, two, like huge guy, like, you know, a lot mm-hmm. bigger than Grant. And here's Grant. This like little, well, not little. He's not like, I mean, Phil Sher- Sheridan was only five, four, but, um, like Grant, you know, but yeah, in a bar fight, he would just, I would not want to fight with Grant. No, for sure. No. And, um, Beauregard thinks he does at first and he does not because he was they say because Beauregard was back so far the first day he doesn't really have a concept of what happened and you know what went on and I don't think he was getting the full report so there's now 45,000 Union troops versus 20,000 Confederates and Beauregard's plan was to drive Grant to the river um, but the Union launches Two, they're two surprise separate attacks. Grant's is separate from Buell's, and they're both launched around 6 a.m. And Beauregard ends up retreating because he realizes he's outnumbered. And it's actually Beauregard's chief of staff who suggests that maybe they retreat. Um, he said to Beauregard, Do you not think our troops are very much in the condition of a lump of sugar thoroughly soaked with water? Yet preserving its original shape, though ready to dissolve, would it not be judicious to get away with what we have? Like, in other words, just get the F out of there. 
Yeah, that's a wordy quote for uh, realizing you might be in trouble. I know, like he could have just said, yeah. dude. <laughs> I'm going to speak so poetically to you now, so you listen to me. <laughs> yeah, but that's what they did back then. Like, there's I some know. really, like, there's one really wicked letter, and I hate to mention him on the show, but Nathan Bedford Forrest, like, writes this really wicked letter to brag about where he's going to, like, if he ever crosses Nathan Bedford Forrest again. <laughs> like, it's... He said something like, if you were half of a man, I would slap you with my gloves or something like that. Like, it's a really, it's a really poetic insult, <laughs> but it's a huge insult. Yeah. Um, so Beauregard ends up withdrawing to Corinth. Um, Nick, do you have anything to add about what happened on day two? No, I mean, basically, yeah, they, they end up retreating. Um and then there's not much follow-up. There's initial kind of follow-up Sherman sent after them, but then they run into Nathan Bedford Forrest. Mm-hmm. I think it's Falling Timber. Yes. The battle of Falling yep. Timber. And then um, kind of after that episode, uh, they just kind of hunker down, uh, the Union does, is does not, um, and they don't get to Corinth for quite a while afterwards mm-hmm. because eventually there is a battle that plays out there. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so, no, I, I think that's pretty accurate. I mean, First day kind of goes Confederates, but it's not a knockout blow that the second day was for the Union. So no, and there's there seems to be a like Gettysburg was kind of similar. Like there was day one did not go very well. Day two, you know, kind of I think day two of Gettysburg kind of a draw, but then day three yeah. was like, you know, Lee probably should have retreated after day two, but obviously chose not to because that's why we have Pickett's Charge. Yep. Oh, yeah. Um, Grant, after the battle, even though he has brought a victory, is vilified, accused of being drunk. But that's where we see Lincoln coming to his defense saying, I can't spare this man. He fights. And then him and Halleck had some bad blood between Fort Donaldson and Shiloh. Yeah. Because there's a period where Grant's dispatches... Um, go missing. There's no communication. Yep. And some people believe it was a Confederate sympathizer who was basically stopping the movement of the dispatches. And then, so Halleck's not hearing anything. And then there's a rumor that he kind of grabs a hold to that Grant's drinking again. So I feel like that was already bubbling underneath the surface. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it will pop back up again after Shiloh. Halleck is the type of person just, I don't know as much about him as as some of the other generals, but he seems to be like kind of, this isn't business, it's personal. Yeah. And I think, and he's always doing it. I mean, he generals, I think I've read somewhere, somebody put it, he, he's generals from a desk. Yes. So that it's a lot easier to have these ideas than somebody like Grant who's in the field and has to work with reality. Yeah. Um, and then, and Halleck, I don't think, ever had the backbone to make a decisive decision, as we heard Lincoln say that many times to him. <laughs> yeah, and at this time, like, you know, Washington is still heavily involved in in what is going on and giving orders. Now, mm-hmm. maybe not so much out in the Western theater because it's so far removed. Um, but, yeah, it, you know, and it's still at this time, Lincoln has not, I think, completely realized that he needs to relinquish control over to these generals to let them fight this and yeah. and not interfere so much. Um, it, like, so Grant ends up like Hallett comes in at some point and is in charge. And I think actually the anniversary of that is today, April 11th. And, um, but there's others that come to Grant's defense, including William R. Raleigh, who's, I think he's on Grant's staff. He wrote a letter that said like, Grant's not drunk and any such stories are on mitigated slander. And it's basically, you know, goes back to what we talked about Grant's drinking, you know, some of it's probably just nasty rumor that that got out of hand. And I wonder with the bum ankle, yeah. you know what I mean? He was, I mean, it was, by all means, pretty, like a definitely severe sprain. Um, maybe that played into it, too. Maybe somebody just caught a glimpse of him. And like then, hobbling? You know, yeah, maybe it was hobbling, looking like shit, you know, yeah. too, from maybe, because he couldn't sleep well one night. Am I making that up? Or did no, I? no, he didn't sleep. He did not sleep well the night before on April 5th. Not sleep well at all. But you don't sleep well. You got the bump. You're hobbling around. Somebody just sees that. You know, 
I can see how a rumor could easily spread from something like that. Yeah, you're not going to think like, oh man, this guy's like, he's commanding armies and he's in a battle. Like, maybe he looks disheveled because he's he's doing that and he's worried, not like, oh, he's drunk. And then, you know what? Shit, maybe he was drunk and he still beat Johnston and Beauregard, so... Exactly. Uh, maybe they should have been drinking what he's drinking now. Well, that's similar. Like, that's actually a fake, like, quote, like, whatever Grant's drinking, send it to my other generals. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, like, the other thing, too, about Shiloh, one thing I read that, you know, at reunions, like, Union soldiers, you know, or Union Confederates at these reunions, um, like, they get together and they're reminiscing, but then someone say, oh, I was at Shiloh. And the room would go silent because uh, that was actually trial by fire. That's their first time in it. And one thing I want to mention to our listeners, there is an excellent book, historical fiction about Shiloh written by Jeff Shirah, and it's called Blaze of Glory. Mm-hmm. And it is the first in his, um, there's four books in his uh, Western theater war. And it is like, it is an amazing account and it's i see these books as being like game of thrones like you start to get attached to characters that you should not get attached to but it sparks your interest in them to the point that you want to learn more about them which is that last part is exactly what historical fiction should do to Ex- spark your interest so you get more involved exactly into deeper yeah like when i read the um the Chain of Thunder, which was about the Battle of Chickamauga and Lookout Mountain, um, Claiborne was actually one of my favorite characters to listen to in the audiobook. And I'm now reading a biography about him. That's because he whooped Sherman's ass. Yeah, that too. Like, I mean, know your enemy, right? But no, it's actually, and it's actually, he's turning out to be pretty interesting. So, I mean, these books are, if you don't know much about some of the characters, even though it's historical fiction, it kind of, might give you an idea of their personality and you're still going to learn something from it too, because Jeff Shira does his research. Um, and he's got every, you know, the characters, many of them are real. Like they were, you know, he's got Sherman, he's got Grant, but he's also got, um, you know, just some soldiers. Like there's one guy from Wisconsin. Um, his nickname is Dutchie and, it fo- his story gets followed through a few of the books and it's really like really interesting to see things from that perspective like of the of just the common soldier too and it gave me more respect for them no i, I agree it's a great especially if you're just kind of diving into the civil war mm-hmm. it's a good book to read uh they're definitely they're a quick fun read too yeah not that they're short because they're relatively lengthy but it's just a quick nice summer read too especially if people if we have other teachers here looking for something or yes i would recommend them too they're great yeah jumping off point or starting point to dive into more scholarly work after yes that, exactly sure. yeah and there's um there's a really good book about shiloh um by winston groom it's a like it's one of the national geographic books but it's it's and i haven't read the whole thing yet but i've used it for a lot of research i've done about shiloh it's very good too. It's a good starting off point. Um, Battlefields, uh, the website that used to be uh, Civil War Trust is now Battlefields. They've always got great summaries, great maps of the battles as well to go by. Yeah, Shiloh's um, definitely got a lot of information out there. Yeah. Um, um, so, yeah, definitely it's one of those battles that's pretty well covered. Um, definitely more than Fredericksburg. Um, and then not too far behind, probably Antietam and some of the other battles in the East. So yeah. For sure. But that is pretty well it for Shiloh, I think. That's right. Shiloh's done. Yep. Toast. So now we move on to our weekly features. Rock and roll. I'm ready. I'm prepared. Okay. What go. are we doing? We what are, are we doing? We're doing Of the People first. Oh, shit. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I got to look it up, though, here. My of the people, by the people is, I don't know if this is allowed. This could be cheating. But we did get a new review on iTunes. Ooh. We are up to 40. We're still a four and a half star podcast, which I kind of personally enjoy more. 
Um, I was goofing around about it in class a couple times. I'm convinced that a student ranked us. I think we had two one-star rankings. I'm convinced they're students. Probably. Uh, Thanks, um, Nick. You're, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> uh, all right. Dr. Tom Pete. Oh, wow. He gave us, we're a five-star banger. That's not what he said, but he gave us five stars. I'm late to the party as I only recently came across this podcast, but I'm so happy that I did. The adjectives, intelligent, funny, insightful, silly, off-color, passionate, passionate, pass, dude, why can't I talk? Passionate, schizophrenic, chatty, and dedicated all apply. In other words, this is my kind of podcast. Then we get the nice little uh, emoji happy face. Nick and Jeremy are or have been history teachers. Jeremy went over to the dark side. So true. Which is what I did (laughs) the last 20 years of my teaching career. Mary brings in a love of all things Lincoln and the Civil War, which is rare for a Canadian. Like Nick and Jeremy, she brings an appreciation for good books and her tastes are impeccable. Listening to them reminds me of the staff workroom at my old high school where we used to have wide-ranging discussions on any and all topics but especially books we were reading. Though a generation apart, as soon as my first AP government class just turned 40, these are my kind of people, and I consider them my friends, though we've never met. Keep up the passion and good work, Rail Splitters. Jeremy, don't let criticism of your politics blunt your willingness to call 45 to task. There is no doubt that James Buchanan, Andrew Johnson, or dare I say it, Miller Fillmore, were all better presidents than the current occupant. <laughs> which all but those blind to reality can see. That is the value of history. Lincoln was above all a politician with all the baggage that that brings to the table. Having the Rail Splitter podcast on my iPhone, along with Audible books, makes my daily walks much less a chore and adds to my own store of information. Count me as one satisfied customer, Tom. So, Wow. That is quite the review. Thank you. And remember, you're... Rating can also be read online, whether it's a five-star banger rating or whether it's a one-star your pathetic rating. We will, will read, read it. it yes, Nick it. will read it. Wow, thank you, uh, Doctor Tom Pete, for that. Wow, that's. Um, and actually, he's going to get another mention on here because my uh, of the people is actually. Uh, Tom Pete is quite an active poster on our Facebook group, so if you haven't joined that. Um, like us on Facebook and um, myself or Real Splitter Jeremy will approve you, pre, um, approve you so you can see everything. But uh, Tom Pete's always posting photos of where he's been, whether they're Lincoln sites or um, Civil War sites. And he posted, um, he said, U.S. Grant has been the subject of two recent podcasts. If you've never been to the Grant Cottage on Mount McGregor, you should take the time to visit. It is in pristine condition, left almost exactly as it was the day Grant died. And he has posted some photos for um, all of us to have a look at. And that's awesome of you, Tom. So thank you so much for that. And we always appreciate seeing your posts. And we actually appreciate um, everybody who posts like photos of their travels, be they Lincoln or Civil War or articles or whatever. It's great to just have that group of people to, uh, quote unquote, hang out with and, you know, know that there's fellow Lincoln and Civil War geeks out there. And we're up to 264 members on uh, the Facebook group. Yeah. So, And always stuff, I would argue, just about stuff posted daily. Yeah, and uh, I, I ever since the journal came out a few weeks ago, I've noticed like more people liking the page. So, <laughs> That's because you're a published historian. We now have I'm credibility. Not a published historian. <laughs> You are now a historian. Uh, Mary works at the Lincoln Museum now. No, that's not true. I'm officially right now the shyest person in the world. <laughs> and then she's probably going to kick me off the show soon for being a dumbass. You're gone. So. <laughs> no, I'm not. Mary will just be on the show next week by herself. Nope. Oh, no way. <laughs> nope. Um, This week in Lincoln? I don't know why I have this frame, but I do. Did I ever show this? No. So what I am showing Mary right now, um, as you know, I do like the Harlem Veteran Project where we interview veterans. And I was lucky enough to go to like uh, a lot of veterans get together, you know, for breakfast and stuff in groups. And I got invited out to a World War II group. This was probably about five years ago. 
And one veteran, he didn't really say anything, um, but he was just, like, drawn on his placemat. Um, and he just, like, drew this little drawing here that I'm showing Mary with pen of Abraham Lincoln. That's really cool. Honest Abe. And just gave it to me. Never said anything. Um, so I had it, like, framed ever before we did this. I don't know. I just thought it was kind of cool. So, yeah, just kind of popped up. He must have known. He must have been from the future and knew that – I was going to be on a rail splitter podcast. So, um, kind of cool. Two of my different things I do, hobbies coming together here. Um, the World War II, the Harlem Vet Project, and uh, Abraham Lincoln Rail Splitter. So, that is our week in Lincoln. So, maybe I'll take a picture, share it with you. Yes. Since you're the, you are the Twitter master. Apparently. Civil War fangirl, go visit her. <laughs> Thank you. So I think she's a celebrity. She's up to ten million views. You got a blue check mark yet? Pardon? You get the blue check mark yet? No. What's the blue check mark? Means like you're legit. I'm not legit. You don't know what the blue check mark is? <laughs> no, I don't. So clearly I'm not legit. That's like the celebrity thing that people get. I do not Nope, no blue check mark. Yeah, you're not legit. Nope, I'm not. I'm definitely not legit. You'll probably get it now after that you're published, though. No. I don't know how to get legit. Too legit. No, I don't want to be legit. I like being off the cuff and as I am. I want a blue check mark, but I probably have to have more than 20 followers. (laughs) Yeah, you might. (laughs) I maybe actually tweet something. Yes. Uh, Yeah, I got to get better at that. So I think that's it for this week. You have anything to add, Nick? Okay. No, I don't. All right. Uh, good job. Good job with the research. Thank you. You know, now that you are the published historian, <laughs> I'm going to leave all research up to you. Uh, I'm joking. No pressure. No, thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, and thank you, Mary. Good job. Thank you. And your show notes always make it easy to follow along. Mm. Thank you, and thank you for your contributions, too. And We are a great team trio here at... Real Spider Podcast, and Jeremy's going to be back with us soon, and he's always here in spirit with us, so we're always, I always still consider us the trio. So we know for sure we're not going to be uh, dropping an episode next week because it's Easter, and I am headed to Chickamauga Battlefield. So I'll be tweeting lots from my Twitter account. Um, it's Civil War Fangirl at Miss underscore Bellatrix, um, but I'll tweet some too from the Real Splitter account as well. So if you want to follow along with me while I'm there, Um, So we will be back with you the week after that with a brand new episode. So happy Easter to all of you who are celebrating and keep walking the world with malice toward none and with charity to all. And we will see you next week.